You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good morning, EBF. My name is Antonio Gonzalez. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. And this morning's scripture reading is from 1 Peter, uh, chapters 3, verses 1 through 7. So please turn in your Bibles or your devices. Alrighty, 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the, by, the, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Greetings, church. It's good to be with you, and those uh, joining us online as well, welcome. My name is Tim. I serve here as lead pastor, and uh, so appreciate your prayers for the health of our family. We're on the mend. We, we really appreciate that, so thank you so much for, for praying for us. Grateful, especially for those that, uh, that preached while I was out as well. So, Brady, thank you for opening up God's Word, reminding us of Jesus, our great high priest, that we can come to him in our time of need. So grateful for that. And Daniel, thank you so much for opening up uh, Romans 12 for us as well and reminding us to live out what's in and our, our lives being offered as living sacrifices, pleasing, holy, acceptable to God. Um, I promise I wasn't just trying to get out of preaching this passage, <laughs> so, um, but I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to get back into First Peter here uh, together. And we're picking up in our series where we have been looking at the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in this series, we've been calling it Sojourners and Exiles. As society around us accepts values and ways of thinking that are increasingly at odds, it seems, with Christianity, it is so easy to have feelings of foreignness rise. Feelings of foreignness. But the early church was no stranger to these feelings. In fact, Perhaps no other book deals as much with this theme of what it means to live kind of between two worlds as the book of 1 Peter. Karen Jobes, New Testament scholar, puts it this way, 1 Peter presents the Christian community as a colony in a strange land, an island of one culture in the midst of another. The new birth that gives Christians a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God makes us, in whatever culture we happen to live, visiting foreigners and resident aliens there. Or, to put it as 1 Peter 2, 11 says, sojourners and exiles. 
So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in the beginning of that, that chapter, verses 1 through 7. And just by way of reminder of where we've been, 1 Peter opens, the opening section has to do with reassurance for God's people and their identity being placed and rooted in Jesus Christ. He who is our living hope. Hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And that's the tone, that's the note that Peter sets from the very beginning of the book. Then in verses 13 to 21, we have this theme of living as God's children, as God's children through the gospel. Remember the price of our redemption. Live in holiness and reverence and set our hope completely on he who heals. Set our hope completely on him. The living word is the theme in chapter 1, 22 through chapter 2, 3. And because God has given us new life through the living word, we are to love one another deeply and to long for the word, to long for spiritual nourishment incessantly, just like as a baby craves milk. And then in chapter, or, uh, verses 4 through 10, we have that beautiful theme of the living stone, Jesus being the living stone and we being built as living stones into the temple and into the people that he is building. And it's all for the purpose of both worship and witness and all because of God's sheer mercy. By the time we get to the second section, really the heart of the letter, starting in chapter two, verse 11, it, the theme is that as God's people, we are to live godly lives in such a way that those around us might sit up and take notice that those around us might see the gospel given flesh and come to glorify God themselves. And so living as sojourners there in verses 11 through 12, we as sojourners and exiles must abstain from sinful desires and maintain godly lives so that the gospel is displayed and God is glorified. Then in verses 13 to 17, we are given that challenge of what it means to live as citizens, being reminded that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, and yet how we live out the gospel in our current socio-political setting matters. It matters to God, and it matters to people that are watching closely to see how congruent our lives are with what we teach. Then in verses 18 to 25, we have the theme of living as servants, and are given the example of Jesus Christ, who endured unjust suffering himself, and left us the ultimate example for to follow. And the challenge was for us to trace our lives, to pattern our lives around he who gives life. When we come then to this passage here, starting in verse 1, Peter turns his attention to husbands and wives, but he does so in the context of this section of what it means to live as sojourners and exiles and to live out the gospel so that others may come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we praise you for the living and enduring word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning, God, that you would illumine it through your spirit, help us to grasp its meaning, to bridge it into this, here, our lives in the 21st century. Father, we thank you for your words of truth and grace. Lord, our hearts are torn this morning as we see what is playing out in the world. Lord, we pray for the people of Af Afghanistan in this time, God. 
We pray for women and girls there, Father, that, you're, that you would pour out your peace upon the people there. Father, we pray for the people of Haiti as they pick up from the earthquake there, Father, for no more loss of lives. Lord, would you be their rock and their, their presence, their help. And Lord, we pray even in the midst of this global pandemic and as we see numbers rising once more, we pray, God, for relief. How long, oh Lord, how long? Will we see this continue? We pray for our weary medical workers in particular, God, that you might strengthen and bear them up in this time. Lord, encourage, comfort, challenge us. Open our eyes to what your word has to say for strong and enduring marriages here in our midst. And so, God, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. St. Augustine wrote one of the most powerful autobiographies of all time. If if you haven't read it, I encourage you to. It is called Confessions, Confessions of St. Augustine. And one of the passages in that book, he wonderfully remembers his mother, Monica, and the impact that she had on her husband, Augustine's father, coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Here is what Augustine says in his moving tribute. He says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. I can just envision Augustine's mother finding solace in the words that we've heard read here at the beginning of chapter three. And it is amazing to think that some men who enter eternity owe their new life in Jesus Christ to the faithful example of their believing spouse who gave the gospel flesh in their lives. At the same time, I admit that this passage raises many difficult questions as well. You probably got a sense of that even as we heard, as we heard it read. It can be painful for those of us who maybe have lost a spouse or have an unmet desire to be married or have faced abusive situations in the past. Some have taken this passage and done real damage, honestly, with it by turning it maybe into a marriage manual without consideration of its historical context and the time in which it was written. I think it's worth acknowledging that there are different convictions that are present even among us as a church, and that's okay. My heart is that we will let the living and enduring word of God speak, that the Holy Spirit will illumine this text and help us to grasp its significance, to root it in the time in which it was written, but also that all of us together, no matter where we find ourselves in life, would be eager as a body to support healthy and enduring marriages in our midst. In our time together this morning, we're going to first look at the instructions to wives in verses one to six, and then the instructions to husbands in verse seven, and then finally look at its significance for today. Its significance for today. Our goal should be, as I mentioned, to understand this text and its historical context, then to zoom out and to understand how it fits into not only what Peter is getting at in his letter, but also the greater narrative of Scripture 
and also then to connect the bridge to its significance for today. So, beginning in the first section, instructions to wives. In verses one to two, Peter calls believing wives to submit to their own husbands, especially in the case of those husbands who are far from God, that they would be attracted to the gospel itself. Verse one begins in this way. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. You know, I think it's worth pointing out right off the bat what Peter does here is he lifts up and dignifies women by directly addressing them. And this, even this small act, would have gone against the convention of the day. By directly addressing them. Wives, he speaks to them as responsible moral agents. He speaks to them directly. And maybe just as a side note, there are parts of this passage that might sound grating to the ears of modern listeners. I admit that. But we have to understand how revolutionary these words would have been to first century believers as they heard this, as they heard this letter read aloud. What does the phrase in the same way refer to here? Well, at the beginning of Peter's instructions to servants in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself. In reverent fear, and I believe that that is what Peter is picking up here. In reverent fear of God, this being the foundation or the motivation for then he, what he goes on to say in, in his instructions to husbands and wives. The command to submit mirrors the ones given to all people in relation to governing authorities in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. And then as well to servants in relation to superiors in verses 18 to 20. But to submit means to yield to another or to show deference. It recognizes the leadership of someone else. And notice that Peter doesn't call wives to submit to all men, no, but only to their own husbands. And notice too that Peter doesn't get into the specifics here. He leaves it to husbands and wives to work out for themselves and to navigate what it means to do this as they follow the example of Christ together. The purpose, Peter says, is so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. You know, as Christianity spread, it meant that some spouses came to faith in Jesus Christ while others didn't. And in this case, Peter has in mind believing wives and unbelieving husbands. But I think some more historical context is helpful here. For a believing wife to have a different religion than her husband was a revolutionary idea. For one example, the Greek historian Plutarch, writing um, AD 46 to 127 is when he lived, he wrote in this message called Advice to Bride and Groom, um, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. That's like the worst wedding message I can think of giving. But it gives you a sense of what it meant in this time. And so for Peter to talk about this, to urge wives to submit to their own husbands, he introduces the countercultural idea 
of wives being devoted first and foremost to Christ. Being devoted first and foremost to Christ. So in this way, he masterfully challenges the social order by elevating wives to be able to freely choose to worship their creator, to worship the one true God. And at the same time, he urges believing wives to remain in the marriage relationship and so live out the gospel in that place. Peter uses a little play on words here that I love. Those who do not believe the word, logos, may be won over without words. Without words. Instead of badgering them with the gospel, wives should live in such a way that makes the gospel attractive to their husband. Remembering back to the beginning of this this section, particularly in Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You know, throughout this section, Peter's main concern is that our actions should speak louder than our words. And in the process, people might come to know Jesus for themselves. Karen Jobes, who I quoted earlier, writes, Here is a situation where silence is the more effective means of communication. Here, those actions or behavior have to do with the purity and reverence of their lives. And Peter further spells this out, further spells out what this purity and reverence looks like in verses three to four. And what he does in these verses is paint a really stark contrast. That contrast being of where beauty primarily comes from. Beauty, as he writes, should not come from the outside. Verse three, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. You know, there was a, there was a problem even in the first century of people trying to flaunt their wealth. And there are examples of statues, of, of portraits as well from the first century where upper class women even, had elaborately braided hair and wore um, extravagant pieces of jewelry. It's kind of like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Now, I realize maybe very few in here remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, but think uh, Instagram, for instance. There we go. Think Instagram. Those seeking to flaunt their wealth. My wife pointed out that Instagram, I mean, we all feel this tension, but, you know, People will post that gourmet, you know, made-from-scratch, healthy meal. Well, they won't post the mac and cheese they made the, the next night, you know. Peter wants them to not get caught up in this. Some have taken this to mean that women should not wear, uh, should not have elaborate hairstyles or wear gold jewelry at all. But the Greek phrase at the end of this verse simply means putting on garments, So if you're going to rule out the first two, then you would rule out, you would basically be forbidding clothes of any kind. Doesn't work too well. Instead, and I believe what Peter's getting at is that beauty should come from the inside. Rather, verse four, it should be that your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is not asking wives to be weak. In fact, gentleness, too, is something that is asked of all believers. Think of the fruit of the Spirit, for instance. I believe what Peter is getting at is more of a contrast in values. Inner virtue should be more important than any form of external adornment. Inner virtue. And this 
frees people to captivity to cultural trends, frees people from feeling like they need to seek attention externally. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us that the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. To further illustrate this, then, Peter draws from the example of Old Testament women, especially that of Sarah in verses 5 to 6. These incredible women put their hope in God. As verse 5 says, look at verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Think of the great women of the faith, like Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Their hope was firmly fixed in God and expressed in yielding to their husbands. They adorned themselves with inner beauty. Sarah, who is considered like the first lady of the faith, obeyed Abraham and offered him respect. Look at verse six. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Sarah followed Abraham from a faraway country. She followed Abraham even when he made some pretty boneheaded decisions. She offered him respect by calling him Lord, which was like saying, sir, it was a polite term of respect that was culturally appropriate at the time. Peter commends Christian wives for doing what is right and trusting God rather than giving way to fear. So, those being the instructions to wives, then look at the instructions to husbands in verse seven, before then we get to its meaning for us today. Peter urges husbands to be considerate toward their wives. Look at verse seven. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. I love that he doesn't let them off the hook. And in the same way here, again, most likely refers to that notion of living in reverent fear of God back in chapter two, verse 18. However, and I admit this too, it could also point to a similar situation as that of verses one to six, but the opposite, that of a believing husband and an unbelieving wife in this setting. Be considerate is literally live with your wives knowledgeably. That's why some translations will put this as uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands are to be knowledgeable of what is happening in their wife's life, to put to understand their needs. I think that's what Peter is getting at. He urges Christian husbands to be considerate, to be selfless, to be serving toward their spouse. Not only husbands are to be considerate, but they are to treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Husbands should respect their wives and show them honor. And in this way, Peter prohibits domestic violence of any kind. He prohibits abuse of any kind. He says to be considerate, to treat their wives with honor. Admittedly, there's debate as to what the weaker partner or weaker vessel here means. It could be that Peter is thinking in terms of relative physical strength, that of men being on the main stronger than women, although that is not always the case. I can tell you about some pretty fierce women in my army unit that had have no problem throwing me over their shoulders and pulling me out of harm's way. 
So that's not always the case, nor am I going to have husbands and wives come up here and arm wrestle to see, you know, who's, I don't want to embarrass some men in this room, you know. Husbands may be tempted to threaten their wives because of power differential, but Peter urges them to not take advantage of their great strength, their greater strength, and instead always respect and care for their wives. It could also be that Peter has in mind here that weakness as in terms of social weakness. Wives having less, less social power in the eyes of society. And there's also a third option. I hate to just, you know, give options, but that's, that's kind of how it goes, because I, I don't know if there's a great way of nailing this down. But it could be that Peter's thinking in terms of spiritual weakness. So thinking back to if in the same way is painting a picture here of believing husbands and unbelieving spouse, wives. It could be that Peter is talking about wives who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ being weaker being, because they are not yet followers and being treated with dignity and respect because of that. At first glance, it might seem like the very next phrase rules this out and says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, but... If you look a little bit deeper into the Greek, it could be rendered as even a co-heir, meaning that the believing husband is to treat his unbelieving wife, a believing husband is to treat his unbelieving wife as if she is a believer, with the hope of her coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, regardless of whether Peter is thinking about a believing wife or an unbelieving wife here, the emphasis falls on their equality. The emphasis falls on husbands and wives as equal co-heirs of Christ. Look at the rest of verse seven. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Again, Peter masterfully challenges the views of society. In the first century, women were viewed as inferior But here he shows that women and men are equals and should be treated as such. It reminds us of that written in Genesis, the truth written in Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I believe Peter shows that women and men are equals and should be treated as such. And over and over again, we see the even the, the example that Jesus gives in the Gospels of elevating women, of treating women with dignity and respect. And that, that equality is shown by Paul's writings as well in Galatians 3.28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The last thing that Peter writes here really kind of grabs your attention, doesn't it? He gives a remarkable reason at the end of verse seven, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If husbands do not treat their wives with the honor, dignity, and respect that they are due, it could very well get between them and God. They just might see their prayers go unanswered. So if those are the instructions that that Peter gives to wives and then to husbands, let's think now in terms of its significance for us here today. And first, I think we need to zoom out and be reminded of Peter's broader argument leading up to this point. 
In this section, he urges Christians to live such good lives among the pagans that they might sit up and take notice and ultimately come to a place where they glorify God for themselves. Then in what follows, there is a call to submit to every human authority, including government authority. Then there are instructions to servants and then instructions to wives and husbands here, all within this emphasis of living in such a way that displays the gospel and makes it attractive to people who are far from God. And the pinnacle of this section is the example of the suffering of Christ in the very words that precede this passage that I believe provide the foundation for what Peter is getting at. Look back at chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's concern is that the way Christians live should not give Christ a bad name among unbelievers. And this especially shines through here then in the instructions that he gives to husbands and wives. His aim, we might say, is evangelistic in nature. Whereas if you look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, we um, opened that up maybe just a few months ago, Paul's aim is more theological in nature. He grounds his argument there in creation and in Christ's amazing love for his bride, the church. But here in 1 Peter 3, I believe the bottom line that we have is this, that wives and husbands are called to constantly live out the gospel in their marriage. To constantly live out the gospel in their marriage. And especially in cases where unbelieving spouses might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. For wives living out the gospel in marriage, according to this passage, means voluntarily submitting to their own husbands to rightly ranking internal virtue over any sort of external adornment, and earnestly emulating strong women of the Bible who are characterized by holiness, hope in God, respect for their spouse, inner strength, and the fear of the Lord. For husbands, living out the gospel in marriage, according to this passage, means living with our wives in an understanding way, treating her with the honor and respect that she is due, and remembering that you are equal recipients, co-heirs together in the gracious gift of life. So a few takeaways for, for us to consider from this passage as it relates to us here today. And the first is, a, the, they're all in the form of a question, but the first is this. Wives, are you willing to follow the leadership of your husband? This passage talks about voluntary submission it is never right for a husband to demand submission. Believe me, I've tried to get my wife, who is a White Sox fan, to become a Cubs fan as a matter of submission. It is not going to happen, uh, especially this year. <laughs> I can tell you that. Does this mean, though, that wives are to submit to their husband no matter what? I believe 
The answer is no. It does not mean that if your husband demands that you reject Christ that you do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin that you do so. It does not mean that you should always agree with him and never have a different point of view, no. And it does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you or abandons you or abuses you that you should stay no matter what, no. Submission today might look a lot different than submission in the first century. Social expectations are not the same. Even in that idea of offering respect like, like Sarah did for Abraham, it doesn't mean a way of applying that text is not saying that wives should go around calling their husbands sir or lord. What it means is that there are culturally appropriate ways to render respect or honor and that we find the ways in which we should do so. Rather than submission being viewed through the lens of limitation, that of what we can and cannot do, what our rights should or should not be, it ought to be viewed biblically as loving service toward others. Wives are to cherish and to give their lives for their husbands, just as husbands are to love and to lay down their lives for their wives. Second question to consider is, wives, where do you find your beauty? Women especially are bombarded with images of what society views as beautiful. And the pressure placed on women by today's culture is nothing short of oppressive. I was talking to my wife about this even before I left here this morning. Does your beauty come from the store or from the heart? God wants to see the beauty of your character that will never fade away. And again, as I emphasize, I don't believe that this is saying that or that it rules out the braiding of hair or the wearing of jewelry. No, it is that it is a matter of what is primary and what is secondary. That what should be primary is that of inner beauty and strength. Proverbs 31:30 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Husbands. Ooh. I'm just going to like put myself down here in the front row, I think, when I preach this. Are you living the gospel in such a way that you are worthy of submission? When we demand that our wives submit to us, we are already distorting what Christian marriage is all about. One Christian leader puts it this way, He said, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know when I am unworthy of it, she does not submit. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy. Again, think about what Peter emphasizes in being considered or living knowledgeably with our spouse. It means knowing what's happening in their lives, being understanding of their needs, and putting them first. There is absolutely no room in the marriage relationship for abuse of any kind, of any form. Husbands, are you worthy of submission? This is a tall task, but we have a great God who has given us his great gospel. Let us ask for his great grace. Husbands, are you treating your wife with respect? Husbands, hear me out again. Your wife deserves the highest care, the highest love and honor that you can show. And if you fail to recognize your wife's fundamental equality, it just might jeopardize your prayers.
just might jeopardize your prayers. The best thing we can do as men is to trace our lives, to pattern our very lives around the example of Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life. Again, this is an insanely high call. We are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Both husbands and wives, does your life and marriage display the gospel? Does your life and your marriage display the gospel? When an unbelieving spouse or neighbor or friend, coworker, family member sees your life, what do they see? What do they notice? Remember, Peter is coming at this from an evangelistic angle. And one question that I have been wrestling with in particular, even as I have grappled with a passage like this, is that does the way that some Christians apply submitting in marriage actually do more harm than good in the eyes of those around us who are far from God, in the eyes of those who don't know Christ? Here's the bottom line one more time. Wives and husbands, I believe, are called to live, constantly live out the gospel in our marriage especially so that unbelieving spouses might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Wives, this means, according to this passage, it means voluntarily submitting to your own husbands, rightly ranking internal virtue over external adornment, and earnestly emulating the examples of strong women of the Bible who were characterized by holiness, hope, respect for their spouse, inner strength in the fear of the Lord. I believe it's worth pointing out that even as Paul urges respect, wives to respect their husbands at the end of his passage, Peter urges husbands to respect and honor their wives in this passage. For husbands, living out the gospel in marriage means living with, with your wife in an understanding way, understanding her needs, putting them first treating her with the honor and respect that she is due, the dignity that she should have, and remembering that you are equal recipients, that you are co-heirs together of the marvelous and gracious gift of life. May we as a community of faith constantly live out the gospel in our marriages so that unbelieving spouses, neighbors, friends, co-workers, family members might themselves come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And may we as a church body hold up and support and encourage enduring and strong, good and godly marriages in our midst. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your good and gracious word. And we do ask, Lord, that you would strengthen the marriages that are present in this room, that you would strengthen the marriages of those that are joining us online. And Father, would you help all of us to display the gospel, no matter where we find ourselves, whether married or not married. Lord, would you cause us to live out your gospel in such a way that those around us might sit up and take notice, might see the work that you are doing in our lives and come to ask those good questions and to come to a place where they trust in you as their Savior and Lord. Father, we pray for unbelieving spouses in our community, those that we're connected to, God. We pray that you might bring them to a place of genuine faith in you, 
Father, I can't help but think of the names and the faces of people over the years, wives especially, who have lived out your gospel with such grace, such tenacity, such courage. Lord, they inspire us. Would they continue to inspire us to live out, to display your great gospel? Father, we praise you for these truths. We lift up this whole body, and would you give us the strength and grace needed to live this out according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast, and to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.